Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today, we have TED Talk star, Dr. Rebecca Hyas, author of Instinct. Rebecca, welcome. Thank you so much, Mark. I'm so delighted to be here. Well, I'm thrilled to have you. And what a great book. You cannot put this book down. And as I mentioned, when you and I were speaking, it's kind of book you probably have to read twice uh, just to get all of the good information that you're sharing with us. So let's start with this. Please tell us about your background. Yeah, so I am a, an academic by um, by trade. I'm a stress physiologist. I was one of those kids that just kept going to school because I didn't know what else to do with my life. So my background is in uh, evolution and human behavior. I also have a degree in ornithology. So for all of you bird nerds out there, big shout out to you. Um, and then I went on to do a, a PhD in stress physiology. Um, I took sort of the traditional route and became a professor and, and taught for a while and then was recruited away to open a school uh, for entrepreneurs. So it was a startup school, a really exciting experience for me, got me into the startup world, got involved with the tech company, opened my own um, tech company. I have a little app out there. And then everything kind of fell apart. Um, my sister, uh, my sister-in-law was diagnosed with terminal cancer and within a, a month, I quit my job, sold my house, uh, divorced my husband. Like it was just, um, and the reason for that was because I, I looked at my life and realized I'd made almost every decision up to that point out of fear. And I would have been so disappointed if that had been my diagnosis. And I looked back at my life and was like, I didn't, I didn't do any of the things that I really wanted to. And I allowed fear to hold me back from that. So it was truly that moment that I, that I started uh, reframing my whole life, I guess. But that's my background. How long ago was that? That was uh, six years ago. And I, everything that I've done since then, written a book, become a professional speaker, given TED Talks, that's, that's what I've done. So uh, why did you write this particular book? Yeah, I mean, I feel like uh, I had this, this sounds really terrible to say, but I feel like I had a gift in that. I had an academic professor early on give me a pair of glasses, like a lens through which to, to view the world. Um, and it was from an evolution and human behavior lens, right? And it, I started seeing the world differently. Um, and I really wanted to give those glasses to everybody else to say, oh, look, all the things that we're doing, this makes sense when you look at the world through these glasses. Um, because I think there's so many biological applications to leadership and business and, and places that we're not fully applying um, our biology. So that's, that's why I wrote it. And um, why are you hoping readers get out of, out of this book? And there's a lot to get out of it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think first and foremost, um, a sense of normalcy. So this book is not meant to be a blame and shame book, right? It's it's like, ah, oh, you're bad, you're doing this instinct and you're 
the reality is often, I think we get caught into this trap of, of feeling like we're not good enough or we need to change. And it's not a victim mindset book either. It's okay, good here. You know, this is why you do what you do. Now you have an opportunity to change that, to reframe that. Um, so I hope my community, my, my readers feel a sense of community and hope about taking back their power over their biological instincts. And, and why'd you choose this title? And I love the title. Thanks. I mean, because uh, it's cool. I don't know. Uh-huh. Instinct, instinct was like, oh, it just felt like, well, first of all, I'm talking about seven instincts, right? So right. Um, that one word title, I'm like, oh, this feels like a thriller novel. It feels like a Grisham novel or something. But I actually had somebody say something about the subtitle that that caught me off guard. I said, you know, I really, I really want a book that unwires my brain so I can stop worrying about productivity and find success the way I define it. And I, I sat with that for a second because, you know, the, my subtitle is about rewiring your brain to find success and, and increase your productivity. And I was like, you know, ironically, what you just said, it's still the perfect title for the book, right? It's about doing these things with intention rather than out of instinct. So one of my famous lines that I stole from my husband is if you want to get nothing done, great, set that goal and then accomplish it. Right. So you get to define things. Just make sure that you're actually defining them, not operating from instinct. And, and having somebody else decide what those things should be for you. Correct. Exactly. Which if we're not conscious of it, our, our instincts have already decided what our life looks like. You, you listed three goals uh, uh, in the book. Please tell what they are. <laughs> I, okay. I had to go back. I'll be honest. I was like, Oh my gosh, what were my goals for this book? So the first goal was to develop an awareness, right? Be aware of the instinct that's at play and how it's actually mismatched with the environment that we're living in. So we've got in this book, I detail seven instincts that simply aren't helpful in the modern environment. So the first step is to develop that awareness. The second goal is to then recognize the outcome that the instinct is trying to achieve. So if we take survival, right? Sometimes our survival instincts get in the way of us making good decisions, but it doesn't make us bad. It's the instinct is there to help us survive. Thank you, instinct. Now, the third goal is to move that and say, okay, I recognize, I'm aware of the instinct. I recognize what it's trying to achieve. Now, let me use an intervention to make sure that we're actually getting to the outcome that we intend to get to, not what my brain thinks I need to do, because my brain still thinks we're living in Stone Age times. So we've got a little mismatch that we have to bridge the gap over. Yeah, I, and I think everybody feels like they should go with their gut instinct. But what about going with your gut instinct as, as opposed to maybe taking a step back? To, is your gut instinct usually right? Yeah, this is a question I get asked a lot. And, and it's, um, it's an interesting one because I, I don't think you can ignore your gut instinct. In fact, I think we've, we've kind of pulled these two things into two separate camps and we say, okay, well, your gut instinct is, is something you should ignore completely. And you should only think. And I don't think that's the right answer too, uh, or either. I think it's a combination. Your gut says some good things and you need to pay attention to those. But often what you need to do is say, all right, I'm feeling this feeling. Let me go back and analyze this at a conscious level rather than allowing that gut instinct to drive a behavior that isn't actually the outcome that you, you want. So it's a, it's a mixed match. Um, when, when is fear a positive beyond knowing not to jump in front of a car or drive off a cliff? Because you talk about fear being uh, a positive. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think often when I work with clients in particular, they're like, whoa, I want no stress in my life. I want no fear in my life. And I was like, no, you don't. No, that's, that's a dead person's goal, right? Like if you have no fear, if you have no stress, you're not getting out of bed in the morning. So there's a nice mixture of fear and stress that is actually useful to us. So when you think about stress or fear, you can think about it sort of like as an inverse U-shaped curve, a normal curve, if you will. And if you have no stress, no fear, you also have no performance. You get nothing done. But a little bit of stress, a little bit of fear of like, oh my gosh, I have to get that, that report written by Friday, that actually increases your performance. So you're not just sitting around on Monday, twiddling your thumbs, twiddling your thumbs, right? Now you've got the stress, the fear that I have to get this done and it'll increase your performance to a point. So that's known as the Yerkes-Dotson curve. And it actually helps to motivate us because when we're in fear and when we're excited, we're actually putting out the exact same hormones that that our body produces. So, so fear, stress, anxiety, um, you're having cortisol and adrenaline pop out. And when you're excited, you're having the exact same thing. So the only real difference here is how you interpret it. Am I having an adventure or am I having an ordeal? And if we continue to choose adventure, we can actually use this fear, this stress to drive us to higher performance. What do you mean when you're right? We're operating under ancient programming. Yeah. I mean, uh, just that our brains simply aren't built for the world that we live in. So our brains aren't built to keep us happy. For example, they're built to keep us alive. So the example that I often give to help demonstrate this is when you put your hand on a hot stove, what do you guys do? Right. You, You pull it back immediately. Why? Why do you pull your hand back? Well, most people say, well, because it hurts, right? Heat, pain, right? Those are logical responses. But that's not actually why you do that. We like to think that this frontal lobe, our conscious cognitive brain is in charge. It's the CEO of of us, but it's not. We pull our hand back before we feel heat or pain. It's an instinct. So this subconscious portion of our brain is causing a reaction. It's causing a behavior long before we catch up and go, oh, it's hot. This is just the press secretary, this frontal lobe, this conscious brain is the press secretary explaining away the behavior we've already done via ancient programming. And, and, and when you talk about the subconscious state, what does that mean? Yeah, it's, it's any time that we're operating without a conscious awareness. So when I'm talking about this, this conscious mind, this frontal lobe, the brain is divided and not completely accurately. So be careful here. A lot of people talk about the lizard brain being the subconscious portion. Well, yes, and, or the the amygdala only reacts under fear. Well, yes, and excitement. And so the subconscious brain is the part of the brain that has instincts, that has immediate reactions without us ever registering or bringing to our consciousness that we're doing it. So think about breathing. Now you can consciously breathe right? That was a conscious decision I just made. But most of the time we're not going around thinking, oh, I have to inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale, right? We're just doing that subconsciously. And that's great. But oftentimes a lot of our behaviors are operate at that level as well. And we're completely unaware that we're we're doing that. Uh, When you write everyone's body and mind is wired to survival at the expense of missing what is around us, like the world's famous violinist, Joshua Bell playing in the subway, which I thought that was an interesting uh, story. 
how do you, how do we make sure we use the instincts to be better managers, parents, and partners? And maybe you can tell a little bit about the uh, Joshua story. Yeah, sure. So the the Joshua Bell story. This is a you know a a violinist who is. I mean, he gets paid thousands of dollars per minute to perform. Uh, a, an absolute genius. And he put on a ball cap one day and a t-shirt and went down to a subway station and started playing and nobody stopped. Like the average person who stopped to like toss some, some coins into his, into his violin case stayed for like 20 seconds or so. And the question became, why did we become so busy or how do we become so busy that we stop actually taking in the beauty in our environment? And I think um, this is part of the way our brains are mismatched in the modern world is that we're so pulled by our busy schedules and we have to do this and we have to survive. And oh my gosh, if we don't get that, that we never pause, come down and say, wow, that is a beautiful sound. I want to just take this in for a minute. And ironically, that's exactly the thing that will allow our brains to slow down. When we don't think we have enough time, that perpetuates this cycle that says, oh, I don't have enough time. And so we feel like we don't have enough time and then we don't have enough time. But if we pause, if we literally stop and smell the roses or we take in the, uh, the beautiful sounds of this violin, what we're doing is we're actually allowing our senses to take in information that wouldn't have been vital to take in in the Stone Age. So imagine this, You're, you have a lion that's charging at you. Right. In those moments, what do you do? Well, you narrow your focus. You put your head down. You're probably looking at your cell phone back in the day. Right. And you're hustling to your job because you got to you have a thing that you have to get out of the way of because that tiger is going to eat you. And this is how we spend most of our lives, avoiding this stressor. And so our brain stays locked into the fact that we have a tiger chasing us when we pause, when we take in the the smells, the sights, when we actually widen our peripheral view. So this is something you can do right now. I know we're, we're all looking at a screen. Uh-huh. As you're looking at the screen, notice the ceiling, notice the floor, notice the stuff around you, notice the nose on your face. When you do that, the, the input output from your brain, right? Your senses drive the input and the output. So the input to the brain is, oh, we're relaxed. We don't have to be focused right here in this narrow peripheral, which means we're not stressed. So then the brain says, oh, we're not stressed. We don't have to exhibit or produce all of these hormones that are going to flood our body to narrow our focus even more. We're okay here. So actually pause throughout the day to smell the roses. How do you, how do, you do that yourself? You, what do you do? I actually, so I set awareness alarms. Um, they work very similar to the alarm clock that you might set to wake up in the morning. So if you've ever set an alarm clock to wake up, you might notice that you start to wake up a few minutes before that alarm clock goes off. Yeah. Because it, it means you've trained your brain to become conscious at a particular moment. So I, I have intentionally set five alarms to go off throughout the day that allow me to just step back, take a slow, deep breath. I actually um, use something called a, called a physiological sigh, which is if you inhale very slowly, very deeply, and then right when you can't get any more air in, go a little bit more and then exhale. What you'll notice if you've ever watched anybody cry, they go, right? That, yeah. What that is, is your body's subconscious response to try and um, get your gases back to normal, to signal that we're okay, we're safe. And so when you do that intentionally, when you go, 
you're actually expanding the alveoli at the tips, the very tips of your lungs and, and allowing the gas exchange to occur at a level that signals that you're safe, that you're okay. And you can exhale a significantly more amount of carbon dioxide by doing that. So I'll set those alarms. I'll check in with myself, make sure that I'm not operating out of fear, do a physiological sigh and get right back to work. We have a question from the audience. Can you you use your theory to change the behavior of a neurodiverse person who has a lot of anxiety and less focus and attention? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the coolest thing about brains is that they are live wired. They're constantly rewiring themselves. I, that's not my word. I wish I could, I wish I could claim it. It's David Engelman's. Um, he's a, a neuroscientist and talks about how the brains are live wired. So literally your brain is different right now than it was three seconds ago before you heard me say that sentence. So these techniques can be used in, in a lot of neurodiverse populations. Um, physiological sizes are, are really helpful. Um, the widen of the peripheral view. These are, these are really anciently embedded um, uh, signals to the brain to say, okay, we're in danger. So we're focused here. When we widen, it's like, we're all right. Yeah. Give it a shot. I'd love to hear your results. Yeah. I'm hoping that that person follows what you're suggesting that they yeah. uh, do for sure. And please fill up. Like if there's ways that I can help out further, I'd be happy to. What's the difference between chronic stress and, and acute stress and what is causing the number you quoted, 88% of workers reported moderate to extreme stress and were times less stressful before all the technology uh, were employed? Okay, let me break that down and start with uh, chronic and acute stress. So acute stress or chronic stress is this acute stress over time. Chronic is long-term. We've had lots of acute stress. And so Actually, let me, let me break this down differently. So I'm going to start completely fresh here. Um, our body starts off with a baseline level of cortisol. That's your main stress hormone. Baseline level means you're operating here. It's what gets you out of bed in the morning to, to go seek food. Cortisol isn't all bad. It's the spikes in cortisol and how long it stays up. So we have this baseline level of cortisol. When we have an acute stressor, a a moment, a a loud clap behind you, right? You're, that's an acute stressor. Your your heart rate goes up. You're like panicked for a second. And then it comes back down. That's okay. You're going to have acute stressors throughout the day. The problem is under chronic stress, those acute stressors become frequent and that baseline level comes up. And now, even when you have an acute stressor, your baseline level is high already. You're already elevated. Your heart rate's a little bit faster. You may be sweating. Your mouth may be dry. And it doesn't have much more room to go up. And chronic stress is when we get into a lot of trouble because we just, our bodies start to break down under high levels of cortisol that is chronic. And our immune system deteriorates and it's it's pretty, pretty bad. So um, I think the next part of the question was about the 88% of workers Moderate yes, report stress. moderate to extreme stress and were times less stressful for all of us before the technology. Because I kind of think that technology's made it way more stressful because you're on all the time. Yeah, it's a great irony, right? So um, the 88% of workers um, being moderate to extreme stress, that survey was done in April of 2020. Right. So think about that. COVID had just begun to become a little bit more of a chronic stressor for people. And I think technology is one of these. It's a no-win situation because when when we still well, think back into like the 1950s, 60s, there was this big thing of like, oh my gosh, what are housewives going to do? They're going to have dryers and washers. 
they're not, they're going to have so much time on their hands, right? There's all this modern technology, dishwashers, ugh, they'll have so much time. And of course, that's not what happened. We just continuously add to our plates and, oh, well, now the, now the level of clean cleanliness has to go up because look, now we can do this technology even faster. And now I can answer emails while I'm on vacation. And now, so we've created this kind of stress monster by chasing higher and higher levels or expectations of what we should put that in quotes, we should be achieving. Um, and I think that's a really dangerous trajectory to be on. I, how do you manage to control that? Because I, I have to say, I just was away for four days. It was great. My girlfriend and I had a wonderful time in Annapolis. And yet I'm still checking those emails and responding to them. And she's doing the same thing. You know, we've enjoyed it. But then all of a sudden you have this like uh, break and those things, oh, maybe I'll just check this and I'll respond to that. But how do you actually just turn it off for some period of time and not get stressed by the fact that you turned it off? Yeah, I mean, that's huge. I think you've hit on a really important point and, and something that's really difficult for people to do. I think one of the big strategies is setting expectations for others. So if you have the expectation um, or if I set the expectation with you that I'm going to be gone on my vacation for three days. And then while I'm on vacation, I'm answering emails and stuff. Then you, you know that if you email me, I'm, I'm probably going to get to it anyway. Yeah. But if I say, look, I'm gone for the next week, don't expect a response. And then I hold to that and I don't respond. That's good. Now I've set my expectations so that people know technology is off. And that is a really hard thing to do because people have a hard time setting up boundaries. They're scared of what others will think or what others will do, or they're going to get kicked out of the tribe. Oh my. Yeah. And reality is once we do that a few times, we realize, Ooh, it's okay. Nobody died. This isn't a tiger that's charging at me. These emails will still be there when they get back. And, um, and that's difficult. I, I struggle with it myself. Um, I mean, I find that even more stressful knowing that I might have like 200 emails. So Every day during my trip, I sit down, just give me an hour to get through these emails because I don't want to come home and find out, oh my God. So I'm not sure what's actually better for me yeah. to respond or to turn it off and say, you know what? Okay, when you get home, you'll just spend the next eight hours responding to everybody. Right. What, what, do, you, I, what do you recommend? I mean, I think it's very individual. I, I would recommend A, make sure you set up your boundaries and make them clear. B, unsubscribe from as many emails as possible. C, consider alternatives to email. We didn't have email 20 years ago. Like a quick phone call can often resolve a lot of chains of emails back and forth. And then finally, when it comes to whether or not you do the whole batch or my ask is what, what will stress you out less? Because you have to be aware of your own stress. For me, if I go away on vacation for three days, I'm going to check an email Never. Uh -huh. <laughs> I go on vacation for a week. I will, I will say, okay, there are going to be two sections, maybe on Tuesday and Friday that I'm going to sit down and I'm going to spend two hours and I'll set a timer and I get through all of the important stuff. And then I let it go. But, but you have to be very clear about your own boundaries. Otherwise, and this is what happens, I think, in corporate America a lot, is people spend most of their day on emails and they never get to the deep work. They never get to the projects because they're always just answering and responding and going to the next thing. Yeah, and you talk about that in your book. And I, I myself like to line them all up. So I'll do like an hour in the morning, uh, hour in the afternoon, and then an hour in the evening. And I like to see them lined up in my email box. And I feel like, okay, I've accomplished something. 
Here, here's a question from the audience. How long have you found it takes for a neuroplastic effect to be established? And can you accelerate this process? And what does it take to maintain these changes? So you, I think you need to explain even what neuroplastic means. Yeah, so neuroplasticity is the, the term that we give the brain to, to its ability to change, essentially, its ability to rewire, to, to shift um, old habits and patterns. And it's a really good question. It's a question that I get asked a lot. And the answer is, nobody really knows. And you'll get answers like, oh, 21 days to a new habit, right? And yeah, to some, but not for others. Um, you can develop a new habit really quickly if it's an easy habit and you do some habit stacking. So um, habit stacking is the, the concept that if I'm, if I'm brushing my teeth every day, which I do, yay me, right? I'm brushing my yeah. teeth. I want to add a new habit in. I should do it immediately after a habit that I already have. So I brush my teeth in the morning every day. The next thing I'm going to do immediately after I brush my teeth is that new habit, right? So I know I start to, to tie them together. Um, and that's a much faster way to sort of accelerate what you're what you're asking there to develop a new habit. The other thing is to break it down to the smallest possible interval. So if I want to meditate, say my new habit is I'm going to meditate for an hour every day. Don't start with that goal because what's going to happen is your physiology is going to work against you. You're going to sit down for the first hour and you're going to get through 10 minutes and then you're going to give up. And then you have this loser's effect. Your brain increases its, its cortisol, decreases its testosterone and says, you know what, it's, that wasn't that good. So then tomorrow you're less motivated to do it. You have lower dopamine and lower and lower and lower. The exact opposite is true if you set the goal very small and it's a process goal. So my goal is still the same. I want, to, I want an hour a day uh, to meditate, but I'm going to give myself a runway of, I don't know, two months. And I'm going to meditate one minute the first day, one minute, and then I do it. Yes. So now my brain releases dopamine, which is really an addiction hormone. It's a motivation hormone. It's like, yeah, you did it. You accomplished that little thing, right? And it's attached now to my toothbrushing habit. Good. And now tomorrow I'm going to do two minutes and I do it. And yeah, two minutes, I'm rocking it. And so you increase sort of stepwise. Um, that, those are the two biggest techniques for, for um, accelerating your neuroplasticity in your brain. Do you, it's a great question. Yeah. I, I'm wondering, do you get eight hours of sleep? <laughs> I do. I get nine actually. Wow. <laughs> I'm a nine hour sleep person. Um, and I'll tell you why. So stress, um, the brain under stress, stress decreases your sleep, not ideal all throughout the day. Your brain has this incredible blood brain barrier that protects your brain from all of the junk that you put into your body all day long. At night, the pores of that blood brain barrier expand, which allow all the metabolic buildup, all the processes, all the waste products to get out. If you're not sleeping eight hours a night, you're not giving all of the the time that your brain needs to get all of the waste products out of it. And so you're basking all day long in that kind of brain haze, that fuzz, that's just toxins kind of hanging out in your brain. Those metabolic waste products that have built up. So sleep is like the number one thing that I tell people they need to do. 20 minute nap, if you can, 20 minute nap better than any cup of coffee. Increases the number of tasks you get done throughout the day, increases your um, productivity, increases um, mental capacity on, on, I should take one right now on vocabulary, pretty sleepy. Uh, so sleep is, is huge. Sorry. Why did you ask that out of curiosity? I, I, well, because I sleep five and a half hours a day. And 
seven days a week. And I think that's because my brain is constantly wired up on all the different stuff that I'm doing. And I feel totally refreshed. I mean, when I fall asleep, I'm like dead. It's like a light switch. And I literally fall asleep. I read. And in one minute, I am out like I'm in a coma. And then I wake up five and a half hours uh, later. Also, I'm also front loading my life. So I'll probably be dead by 70, but I'll be really 90 years old. (laughs) Because I put all those hours in so early. Yeah. And, you know, I I don't mean to scare people with the like the blood brain barrier, metabolic waste products. Different people have different schedules. It it takes my brain some time. Like that's what I've discovered. It takes my brain some time. And I'm sure there's a way to measure that. Don't ask me because I I don't know the science there. Um, But my guess is it's somewhere between you know, that five and, and 10 hours that people really require. And if you feel good on five and a half hours, more power to you, my friend. Yeah, yeah, I, I, it, it works for me, but not for everybody, for sure. Yeah. Is, is there certain foods that you kind of stay away from? And I, I embrace all the things that you're probably going to say, stay away from like artificial sweeteners and chocolate and all those things. Uh, so, yeah, sure. Yeah. There are certain yeah. things that I think we all should stay away from. Um, that said, I am a huge fan of moderation um, and, and moderation itself should be moderated. Um, Mm -hmm. So I I eat chocolate almost every day, small amount. Right. Um, I drink coffee. I sometimes put artificial sweetener in it. Not proud of it, but I do it. Uh, Certainly not the greatest things for your brain, but I try and balance my life so that I am in both enjoying it and, um, and intending to extend it. Right. So um, yeah, I, I can speak longer on that if you want, but the, the biggest, best piece of advice I've ever gotten on nutrition is this, your taste buds will always lie to you. Your stomach will not. So pay attention to your stomach, right? If you're putting something into your body and it tastes really good, but you feel awful later, hello, Krispy Kreme donuts for me. I I just had one yesterday. Love them. They're so good. And then I feel awful immediately afterwards. So I need to be paying more attention to my stomach and less to my taste buds. So uh, how do you avoid uh, making bad decisions when you're under stress? Because I think a lot of us end up making bad decisions because whatever that may be that causes stress and we react as opposed to taking a step back. What's your recommendation on that? I mean, I think you just- why does that happen? Yeah, you you just nailed it right there. I think the the three-step process that I tell people all the time to avoid making bad decisions under stress is an ad process, right? ADD, of course, it's an acronym. So awareness is the first step. Like you need to know when you're stressed out. Most of us are walking around stressed out all the time. And so we're completely unaware of the fact that we're heightened and we're emotional and we're making decisions quickly. And until you recognize, oh, this is not what I'm supposed to feel like. This normal feeling is not a healthy one then it's really hard to step back, right? So awareness is key. That's, that's the first step. The second is to define the fear, right? Define the stress. Like, what is it that's, that's causing me this stress? Is it um, a deadline? Is it a time stressor? Is it a tiger? Oh my gosh, that's a real stressor. I need to pay attention to that. Is it um, my fear of rejection or looking bad or failing? Those are huge and important to pay attention to but not something that a stress response is going to help. So our body is designed to like fight, flight, freeze, right? Three things. Either we run away from the stressor, we beat the stressor up, or we pretend like we're dead. Hello, procrastination, right? Uh And neither of those things, neither of those, none of those responses actually helps when we're trying to like finish a project. 
So if we can define the stressor and say, oh, this isn't something that I can run from, fight against, or freeze to get out of. Now my brain says, oh, okay, this is not a life and death situation. Then and only then do I make the decision. So it's awareness, definition, decision. And that decision is what's the smallest step I can take towards a, a positive outcome. And, and so if you can take those small little steps forward, you're mitigating risk, you're, take, you're moving forward, you're creating momentum, you're creating that, that winner's physiology. Um, and that's, to me, the best way to avoid making a, a bad decision. So a uh, question from the audience, do you think we should do the hardest task first thing in the morning or easier ones and build up momentum? Yeah, I'm a big fan of eating the frog. Um, so, and again, this is, this is the momentum. <laughs> Let me rephrase that for me, eating the frog works for you. Eating the frog might be the last meal of the day, but if you do it, you do it. That's great. Um, eat the frog is a, I think is a Mark Twain, um, who says, do the, do the worst, the hardest thing. First thing of the day, if you eat the frog, everything else is going to be easy afterwards. If you jump out of bed and that's the thing that you can conquer, great. I am a big fan of that because your brain is actually sharp when you first get up. It's attentive, it's ready to go. And you can do that deep work before all the emails flood in and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm too overwhelmed. I'm never gonna get to that thing. Usually we take the frog and we push it much later into our day. Like I'll work out at 6 p.m. No, you won't, you're gonna be too tired. I'll do that report later on. I'll just get some emails on first. No, you won't, you're gonna get sucked in. So I'm a huge fan of, of getting that frog out of the way, um, but that's what works for me. Um Somebody asked here, I have a hard time with concentrating on projects when I'm in a slump. If I'm feeling off my game, then it seems that my day just never progresses. Do you have any tips for me? Yep. Take a walk. I know it sounds really cheesy or take a five minute meditation break or completely shut it down. There's a, there's a whole series that I go through and it's super cheesy, but I'll share it with you. I go through a shutdown sequence. I was like, okay, this isn't working for me. And I'll shut down what I'm doing. I will go outside. I will take my shoes off if I can, if it's not dead of winter and I'll stand there. I'll inhale a little bit. I will tell myself some positive things, even when I don't want to hear them. So positive affirmations are one of those things that I, I always am nervous to tell people about because they're not always received well, but I will tell you the science behind them is so strong. The whole, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough and doggone it, people like me, it's strongly backed by science. So if you can get outside, have a full reset, tell yourself some positive affirmations and use the third person, by the way, say you are good enough, you are smart enough and doggone it, people like you. Um, that gives you some emotional distance from yourself as if you're coaching yourself, works a lot better. And then restart your day. Give yourself that break to walk away and come back. Um, it's a it's a game changer. Or take a nap. Get go back to the original place where you started feeling lousy. Um, another question that we have here from the audience is: um, Any recommendations to alleviate the constant distraction from our phones, social media, etc.? And I think you touched a little bit about this earlier, but if you can touch on that again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really important. I have my phone right here. We all have our phones sort of like right in distance. And even if they're off, we still, it still pulls our attention. So one of my favorite things to do is actually switch your phone off. When was the last time you had your phone switched? Mm, probably never. Right. It's what, who does that? Good. Do it. Go into another room, set a timer. You've got an hour. 
nothing's going to happen an hour that you need your phone for. You can put emergency overrides on if you have kids or, you know, a partner that you want to make sure they can, they can reach you at any time. That's fine. But it's off. Now it's effort to have to go on and turn it on and check your social media, make, create some friction there. Like even for me, once my phone is on, my social media is in a folder that's in a folder. So I have to very intentionally click on the folder, then click on the other folder, then get to the social media that I want to go to. So it makes it a little bit harder. I'm like, I don't, I don't have time. Otherwise, subconsciously, we may be just picking up our phone and checking. The other thing I'll say is the Ohio principle, only handle it once. So often our tendency, if we're saying line shopping or something and, and we check our email and then we read the email and we're like, okay, I don't want to respond to that on my phone and we put it away. Well, you just spend five minutes of time reading an email, or maybe you do this on your computer too. You read the email and you go to the next email and you read that email. And instead of just responding it and handling it right there, um, you've now created more work because now you have to go back through, reread it again. It, so only handle it once can be, can be a powerful thing to, to keep in mind as well. So this is probably top, top of mind to most of the people on the planet Earth who've been following the Olympics. Let's talk about the recent decision that was made under stress. What's your take on Simone Biles' move to pull out of the team finals? Yeah, so I did a whole YouTube video on this because I was so shocked. I was in my I was in my running gear actually when I did it, but I was like, "This is crazy! This is wild! This is the best leadership model I have ever seen." And here's why: Simone recognized to me where she was on that Yerkes Dotson curve. Right. Remember, low stress, low performance, high stress or middle middle ground stress, a little bit of stress, optimal performance. And then it goes down the other side of that curve, to low performance again. What she recognizes, she was somewhere on this side of that curve, that distress. So we've got you stress, that's positive stress, pushing you up that performance curve. Simone was on that other side of the curve. So instead of dragging her whole team down with her, if you've ever had a boss, right, who's like, in a bad space, they're stressed out there and they pull the whole team along with them through their bad decision, things just get worse for everybody. What she did was she said, look, I trust you, my team, I trust you, I need to leave. I'm gonna give, I, I know my stress level is here and it is not helping this optimal performance of the team. So I'm going to trust you guys, walk away. To me, it was a huge leadership move. She didn't let her ego get in the way, which is pretty impressive. So, so can you talk about the performance stress Yorkie's Dotson curve and how true leaders know how to sacrifice ego uh, for benefit of the team? And, and, and I also wonder about, you know, will people look at this now and even if they could push through it, and, and you'll talk about this, I know I have another question related to grit, but how will this impact people who think maybe I can push through this, but now I'm thinking I've seen Simone and she literally is the greatest gymnast. Just have to look at her record. Yeah. What's your take on that and, and talk about this? Yeah. I mean, I think again, in a, in to me, a great leadership move, she, she was able to say, look, this is, this is as powerful as a physical injury. You know, if I'm operating from over here on the curve, I guess it would be over here for your audience, right over yeah. here. Um, if I'm operating this low side of performance, I, it's not, it's not going to benefit anybody. It's not going to benefit me. It's not going to benefit anybody else. The best thing that I can do is walk away so I can get back to that optimal performance rather than injuring myself, rather than injuring anybody else on the team, um, rather than hurting those chances. So to me that again, I'll, I just reiterate that's, that's 
a personal decision, but it's an important one to be able to, to do, especially in front of the audience that she was in, right? The, all of the media attention is on her and she's like, nope, mental health, it's important. What? That, is, that takes a lot of courage and a lot of strength. Um, I think so often we put a stigma on mental health. If she'd broken her foot, broken her leg and walked, nobody would have, you know, they're like, all right, well, that happens. But she had something broken here and was able to say, look, I'm not in the right mind space. I'm over here. I'm, I'm not in my peak performance. I got to walk. And she's also in a dangerous sport. I mean, she makes a mistake. She can end up dead or minimally crippled. Well, that's, I mean, we, we applaud, we applauded Carrie Shrug, Shrug, Shrug. Yeah. Yeah. A few years ago, right. In the Olympics. And she vaulted on that torn or broken foot and, and we're like, yeah, bravo fight through the pain. But then what we neglected was a few years before that, um, a Russian uh, gymnast, and I'm going to mispronounce her name, but it's Elena Mukani, maybe. Yeah, uh, I can't pronounce it either. Yeah. She, she broke her leg. The recovery was rushed. She didn't want to go. She was not ready for the Olympics. And then she tried this stunt. Um, she pushed herself too hard or her trainers pushed herself too hard. She fell, she broke her neck and she was a quadriplegic and died early on. And like, that's, we we're looking at that going well physically we we shouldn't we shouldn't push them but mentally we should just push them that doesn't make any sense that doesn't make any sense so i think you know when we're when we recognize that these athletes know their bodies they know what they're capable of and if you're in a poor mental space you're not able to focus you're you're if you're even trying to write an email and you're in a poor mental face space think of how you get torn up and you're over here and you're doing this and you're now Put yourself in the in the position of somebody who whose life is on the line, right? If they screw up that stunt, they break their neck or worse. Personally, so, I think it was so. Better. How do you know when you know when you need to display grit? I mean, because like, I, I, at what point do you say to yourself, "Hey, this could be harmful to me and the team," or that you should play through it? Like, what if Tom Brady on the um, is having a bad day like he was against the Falcons. He's down 28-3, and somehow he pushed himself through. Now, it's, you can't equate the physical risk there, but what if he just said, it's not my day, I'm not going back out there, and he had one of the great comebacks ever. So how do you balance that out? Yeah, and I mean, I think this is, this is again, it goes back to being very personal, and I think a lot of leaders look and they say, well, I know what's best for you. I think you need to be pushed harder. That's how you'll perform. And the reality is only you know, you know, only Carrie Shrug knew that she she could push through the pain. But if she'd known that she couldn't, people need to listen to her. Like we know our bodies. If we can trust our bodies, if we can get back in touch with our intuition, um, we know that our mental state is off. We need to walk away. And, and just maybe it may be a five minute reset, right? And maybe what your, your audience member asked before, and maybe walk away, <sighs> All right, come back and push through. Um, but but often we need to be aware of where we are on that curve because only we can measure where we are. How do you make sure managers don't push people over the edge? Because if Bella Caroli was still managing the US women's gymnastics team, she can have her arm hanging off of her shoulder and he would say, come on, you can push through this. How do you make sure... Uh, and, and there've been lots of players whose careers have been ruined by managers pushing them to the uh, brink of physical and mental exhaustion 
where injuries or they just can't even do it anymore. So yeah. How, how do you, how do you deal with that? Again, I think this is, this is coming back to knowing yourself and knowing where you are and holding that boundary firm. Um, so often I think we are, we're too eager to please others. Um, we become people pleasers and just like, yes, I will push through this pain. It is good for me. And it's not pain is there for a reason. And yes, there is something to, to having grit, right. And saying, okay, fall down, get back up, fall down, get back up, fall down. Maybe I'm doing something. Maybe I could do something differently. <laughs> maybe, maybe I shouldn't just continue on this cycle. Maybe there's another shift that I can have here. Um, to me, you have to, you have to trust individuals. I know what's good for me. And the reality is I will get what I put in. And if I put in constant work, constant work, constant work, constant work, at some point, I'm going to get past that peak where I'm not optimally performing anymore. And just because my, my manager says, yeah, but you've been performing up here for so long, just a few days more, I have to be strong enough to say, nope, I need a break. I need a break in order to get back to that optimal performance. Um, so it's really, truly knowing yourself and trusting yourself and setting those clear boundaries. Do you think social media attention could have driven this decision? Uh, how do you, what's your take on that? I mean, you know, that's gotten even worse by the day, uh, all of the social media and, and the fact that everybody in the world uh, can comment on this. You know, years ago, it was just like a newspaper columnist or a TV uh, columnist reporter. But now everybody in the world can jump in on your moment. Yeah, it's a lot of pressure. You know, it's a, it's a ton of pressure. We used to live in tribes, for God's sakes. A hundred people might know about your decision. Now it's a hundred thousand the first two minutes. And after that, exponentially increasing. So I think, you know, social media is one of these, um, sometimes really good, sometimes really bad, really dangerous thing. Um, the thing that I think we have to pay attention to is that it's very natural. It's instinctive, in fact, for humans to compare ourselves to one another. And a little bit of competition actually helps us. So if we look and we're like, oh, look, Tina's performing right here. I can catch her. Um, that actually is helpful. So social comparison is natural and can be helpful on small levels. However, it hurts us when we try to compare too much or too large. So when we look at celebrities and we're like, I need that mansion, I'm going to go get that. Or we expect she's going to have all the gold medals. She's going to have perfect tons on everything. Um, what that does is it actually transitions us to this massive um, feeling of under-accomplishment. And we, we start moving towards maximizing rather than being satisfied where we are. There's nothing that will ever create that happiness. And so we, we get stuck in this loser cycle because we didn't achieve perfectly because our neighbor is always going to have more than us. Because once we get that yacht, we're looking at the bigger yacht over there. So this is the sort of social comparison cycle that I think we often fall into. And that certainly could have been part of the, part of the decision. Uh, there was a, a basketball coach back in the 50s and 60s who won two national championships and the pressure was so great that he actually gave up being a coach. He's in the Hall of Fame and became a school bus driver for 13 years in a remote city in Oregon that people didn't even know until the New York Times did a story on him. And he just said, back then, the pressure was so great. Um, one of the audience asked, do you fake it until you make it uh, for affirmations? Yeah, that's a great question. So the fake it till you make it, mm, it's a big debate. Um, so the, the whole idea with affirmations, um, if you say I am smart, I am confident and you don't believe those things, right. You're actually faking it. Lying to yourself doesn't help. 
In fact, it lowers your self-esteem. It lowers your confidence. So instead create that distance where you have somebody coaching you. And that can be you. When I say, when I do my affirmations, I say, Rebecca, you are smart. You are confident. You are capable. Or I'll use my name, Rebecca. When you watch LeBron James um, talking about his move to the, from the Cavs to the Miami Heat, he says, LeBron James does what's best for LeBron James. He talked about himself in the third person a lot. So um, don't fake it. Coach yourself from the outside. When you create that, that sort of emotional distance by using you or third person, um, you actually are able to, to get the benefits without, uh, without the cost. Uh, a question here from the audience. As a leader, how do you help to implement these ideas into your team? Often there are some people that resist and this can make the process challenging. So how do you help get more buy-in? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. I think you're always going to run up against um, conflicts, right? And, and people who, who pull on different tribes. One of my biggest solutions here is to, is to raise the bar and say, okay, what is it that we all have in common? What do we fight against together? And that could be a, a business goal. That could be, um, we fight against mediocrity. We fight against poor customer service. Um, and then, then these are just tools to fight the common enemy together. So bringing, uh, bringing something that is powerful and guttural to the attention of everybody that everybody can agree on first brings them together as a tribe. And then these things are just tools to help fight against that enemy together. And it may be that, you know, well, I don't want to do self-affirmations. That's fine. Let's try meditation because that's what's going to fight this. Um, so reframing it for people, I think, is, is a powerful way to, to bring teams together. How can you explain the sex instinct and how that affects our success or lack of it? The sex instinct. Okay, so the sex instinct um, is really a twofold thing, right? When we talk about sex, it's the actual copulation, right? The act of sex. Um, but in this case, what I'm referring to most of the time throughout the book is the gender instinct. And the gender is uh, our instinct to label and put associations with particular genders. So females back ancestrally were valued for their attractivity because it was a measure of proxy for reproductive health. How healthy are you? How can you have my babies? All right. So females are valued for youth and beauty. Men are valued for their status and size. Can you protect me? Can you bring me good resources? And unfortunately, today, we still operate from some of these same instinctual patterns, which isn't great. How do you slow down your brain to believe you have more time? I think we all struggle with that because everything seems to be going at, you know, faster than light speed. Yeah, I mean, slowing down time, um, <laughs> slowing down time is, is what I talked about earlier. It's really taking in all through your senses, the world around you. So I do a five, four, three, two, one, right? Five things that I can see right now. What are the five things that I can see? What are four things that I can feel? What, what can I touch? What can I feel? What can I experience? What are three things that I can hear? Two things that I can smell. And then at the end, I'll pop a mint in. What's one thing I can taste? When you do that exercise, what you're doing is you're actually slowing down time to speed up. See, our brain is really bad at actually figuring out how much time has passed. So if you ask somebody who's in an accident, everything's gonna go so fast, it went so fast. But then a year later, they're going back and they can remember every single detail of it because their senses that, oh, this is an important moment. I have to layer this down in the brain to take in all of this information. 
So when you're doing those like five, four, three, two, one exercises, what you're doing is you're inputting to the brain, hey, this is an important moment. Take down this time. And so actually you'll expand time in the moment for yourself, which is pretty cool. Um, you may, you may have found this to be true if you've had a, a really stressful day and it's like, it just doesn't end. It's because your brain is layering all this information down going, this is so important. We have to read this. We have to make sure we have this. So do that in moments of calm as well. And you'll start to expand time in a, in a more positive way. Uh, how are women's status affecting the balance of power that men have mostly enjoyed for centuries? And what will this mean to men's future success? Oof. Okay, so this is a loaded question and I love it um, because men, I'm not pointing fingers or blaming you, but you are instinctually threatened when women have high achievements because we are literally taking away your identity. I just mentioned before that women are valued ancestrally for their beauty and youth and attractivity as a way to have babies and men were valued for their status. So with women moving into the workplace, what we're doing is we're actually taking your identity away, what you're valued for. And so I think females, we, we may feel the same kind of threat when men have babies or when we see more men taking care of families or, or being involved in the family, there's still this like, wait a second, what do I do then? Um, right. And so it is truly a, a, a real pull of power. And I, I think that there is some, some dominance and some threat there, which is valid from an instinctual perspective. You talk about how too many choices can cause paralysis and you give a good example about how Legos almost went under. Can you please yeah. tell briefly the Lego story and what we can learn from that? Yeah, sure. So Legos is one of those fun companies because when you think of a, of a luxury brand, of a really big brand, Apple, Ferrari, Google, right? Legos. Yeah, those little plastic block, right? They are huge. They, were, um, they never posted a, a loss from its founding from 1932 until the late 1990s. And then something happened. They started expanding from their classic colors, the red, blue, yellow, right, into... 50 different colors. And they started selling clothes and jewelry and a line of video games and they opened parks. And what happened was they found themselves in 2003 in $800 million in debt. So they just, they, they plummeted. And the reason for this is because they created too many things. Just because we can do something doesn't mean we should do something. And often when we have too many opportunities, too many choices, we spread ourselves so thin that we start going under and we lose focus on what we're really, really good at. So Legos made an incredible um, recovery. Uh, and in 2008, I think 2008, 2009, surpassed Apple and Ferrari on, on their earnings. So incredible recovery. And the reason that they were able to recover was they went back to their basics. They got rid of a ton of those lines that were pulling their attention in 16 different ways. I think so many can, so many of us can learn this lesson and say, ah, what's pulling myself in 16 different ways that I need to say, whoa, here's my actual focus. This is what I want to stay involved in because the world we live in, opportunities can easily turn into burdens. And so when we can get back to saying, what is it that I truly love? You'll have a, a focus that, that'll, that'll do, that you'll do better with. Uh, one of the listeners has interesting view on men and women. However, I see women who are tougher on other women in the workplace than men. Is there a reality there? And I, I can't tell you how many women I've heard say, I'd rather work for a man or work with a man than a woman. 
Yeah, 100%. So unfortunately, uh, this is both a biological and a cultural norm is that women are in competition with other women. And so we've set this up as, and again, not intentionally, not consciously, but when you look at, at HR, for example, women, we are 30% less likely to hire another attractive female. What? What? Because competition. Oh my gosh. She's, she's pretty. I can't have her around. She's going to steal all the mates. It doesn't, what? That doesn't register consciously, but yeah, we are, we are often a lot more harsh on one another because we're trying to bring them down back into, you shouldn't be valued for that. Come back into my world. Um, And it's a really unfortunate instinctive behavior that unless we get into check is going to continue to, to hold us back. It's a great observation to bring it up. MIT uh, neuroscientist Earl Miller said, multitasking isn't humanly possible. What is your definition of multitasking? And does that include working on multiple businesses or activities? And how does multitasking affect creativity? Yeah, okay. So my definition of multitasking is consciously engaged in two tasks at once. So imagine trying to do a math problem. Oh, let's do it. Let's do this together. So if you spell your name out loud and count to 10, so R-E-B-E-C-C-A, one of the five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. That's not multitasking. Multitasking is R1, E2, B3. See the difference? And we think that if we multitask, that we're going to be faster and we'll get more done. And the reality is it's just, it just doesn't. I think there's a big difference between multitasking and being multidimensional. So um, you're talking about you know, working on multiple businesses or activities. I think it's important to be multidimensional, to have different interests. However, spread too thin like Legos and there's going to be a problem. If you multitask, if you're trying to juggle your schedule and your soccer playing and your business and your PTA, and it's going to become a problem. So by batching those things out, you're going to do a lot better. If you slow down, you'll speed up. Oh, and you asked about creativity. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah so massive constraints on, on creativity. If you're multi, if you're trying to multitask, the more you can limit the possibilities, like um, I'm only going to wear gray and black today. Great. You took those choices off the table, the more you're able to be more creative. Um, so yeah, with, uh, with whether that's by setting timers, by narrowing your particular activities, with your internet searching, your brainstorming, give it a time constraint. And that will allow you to actually be more creative than, uh, than if you don't. That's funny about the clothes because Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, Bill uh, Gates all said that they have like just a couple of uniforms they essentially wear yeah. so they don't have to make those decisions. Here's the last, here's the last question. Yeah. Every aspect of, uh, of business has become so data-driven that decisions are often become driven on purely numbers. You say this is a mistake. Why and how do we balance data with our personal goals and not limiting ourselves and those around us based on data? Yeah, I mean, look, I'm a numbers person. I I think that data is important. And um, I think because of the unlimited access to data that we have, we're constantly collecting and analyzing and applying data only to serve our own purpose. So for example, if I want to say, um, I think that only soft pillows are, are the good ones for your neck. I can type into Google, only soft pillows are good for your neck. And I'm going to get all those results back affirming me, right? So rather than starting with this like agreed upon question, what if you tried first to prove yourself wrong, right? What other possible interpretation could be had here? If you consider the context, if you set up a, not a straw person argument, but a steel person argument, right? If you try and argue the opposite 
you'll actually get a lot farther. So rather than trying to justify your own answer, find the data that can interpret your story differently. Um, and, and I think we'll get a lot further than, um, than just relying on numbers that prove us right. Rebecca, I got to say the book is great. Uh, you were terrific. And you uh, somehow put a lot of information into an hour here. <laughs> so we greatly appreciate you taking the time to spend with us. We'll look forward to the next book because I'm sure you got another book in you or many more books in you. And I hope everyone will take the time uh, to read your book because it's really worth reading. And anybody who reads it will probably be like me, which you have to read it twice to get all the information out. And it's one that you'll keep because you'll keep referring back to it. Well, everybody, have a great, safe weekend. And um, we look forward to seeing you all again next Friday. Have a great weekend, Rebecca. Thanks, guys. See you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.